Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Please join Lead Pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Lord of All. All right, well, in our passage last week, Jesus was asked a very important question. If you remember, if you were with us, there was a scribe, and the scribe asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment of all? You remember in the word of God, there's hundreds of commandments that God gave to his people. And the scribe said, which one, Jesus, is the most important of all? And Jesus didn't even hesitate. He quoted from Deuteronomy 6. He said, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love, everybody say love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. When Jesus was asked to narrow it down, which is the greatest command of all, he said the greatest one is to love God, our creator, the one who knit us together in our mother's womb, to love God with all our being. But Jesus didn't stop there. He said, he went on to say, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, that's number one, that's top priority, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And the scribe passionately agreed. He said, you're right, teacher. Now Matthew, the parallel passage tells us, I mentioned this last week, that the scribe was a Pharisee. And so for the first time and the only time in all the gospels, you have a Pharisee who looks at Jesus and says, you are right. You see, this guy was different than his colleagues, the Pharisees. He was uh, 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 being drawn uh, by the Lord, and the Lord could tell that this guy was different. He even said to him, he said, Jesus said to the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And so the, 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 the scribe was close to the kingdom. But how many of you guys know, I mentioned this last week, how many of you know that close is only good in horseshoes, right? And this is not a game, right? The gospel is not a game. We're talking about where people with their immortal souls will spend all eternity. It's not a game. And if this guy wanted to enter, not just be close, but if he wanted to enter into the kingdom of God, he would have to believe what his colleagues, the Pharisees, would never admit. And that is that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He needed to get to the place that Nathaniel, another Jew, reached way back in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, way back in John chapter one, Nathaniel meets Jesus and Jesus proves his omniscience, which by the way is an attribute of God. He, he shows his omniscience to Nathaniel and Nathaniel responds in John, John 1:49, Rabbi, you are the, listen to this, son of God and you are the king of God. Israel. And so the scribe needed to reach the place that Nathaniel had already reached three years before where we are in our Bible. The scribe needed to reach the place that Peter reached about halfway through Jesus' ministry when Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And Peter piped up without any embarrassment, without being ashamed, and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The scribe needed to reach the place that Nathaniel reached, the, the place that Peter, two Jews, by the way, 
There was hundreds of Jews who reached this place in the first century. After witnessing the miracles and, and hearing the, the words of Jesus Christ, the scribe, he needed to stop being close and he needed to enter into the kingdom of God. By the way, if you're here today and you have not yet reached that place where you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord of all and you receive him as your own personal savior, your own personal Lord, Lord of your life. I hope today will be the day that you give your life to Christ. It'll be the best decision you'll ever make. And so this, uh, Jesus knew this scribe, you know, he's, he's on the fence. And so how many of you guys believe that the Lord is not willing that any should perish? You really believe that? Second Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. That's the heart of our God. And so the Lord could see, this guy's close, he hasn't entered yet, he's close, and so what does Jesus do? He keeps sharing truth. Some of you guys have friends, neighbors, coworkers, and they're, you know, they're far away and they don't even care, they don't wanna hear anything. They're, they're like the, the, the colleagues, uh, the Pharisees. Uh, they don't wanna hear it. But then you have some friends, neighbors, family, co-workers, and they're on the fence, they're close, they're, they're open. Okay, do what Jesus did, share, keep sharing truth. This is what the Lord's gonna do in our study today. He's going to keep revealing truth, witnessing to this guy. Matthew tells us that Jesus' words in verses 35 through 37, that we're about to read here in a minute, the parallel passage in Matthew says that these words of Jesus were specifically addressed to the Pharisees right then. And who's a Pharisee? The scribe. And so he's standing right there and he's about to receive this further truth to the Lord. And by the way, the Lord doesn't just share truth to people who are close. He also shares people, uh, truth with people who are far away, whose hearts are hardened. And today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. All right, so let's dig in today. If you're looking at chapter 12, verse 35, just say amen. amen. And as Jesus taught in the temple, okay, can you see him there on the temple courts? What was it um, a couple weeks ago? 30 or so football fields, this huge temple court. And we're gonna see that there's a massive crowd listening to Jesus right now. And so as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that Christ, okay, if you're new to the Bible, that's synonymous with Messiah. Christ, Christos, from the Greek, anointed one. Messiah is from the Hebrew word. All means the same thing, the promised Messiah. And so listen to the question that he specifically asks, or he's specifically addressing the Pharisees. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the, okay, what's the next word? Son. In other words, the human descendant of David. King David, if you're new to the Bible, 1,000 years before Christ, greatest king Israel ever had. Verse 36, David himself, this is interesting, in the Holy Spirit declared. Do you see? Right now, Jesus is authenticating that the Psalms, most of whom were written by David, that when David wrote those Psalms, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Do you see it right there in verse 36? If you do, say amen. amen. And by the way, this whole book has been breathed out by God. 
And so David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him, what's the word? Lord, Lord. everybody say Lord. Lord. It's a title of deity. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son or his human descendant? And the great throng, this huge massive crowd heard him gladly. All right, and so because the scribe was on the fence about who Jesus was, the Lord began to share truth, more truth. He began to share his identity, his true identity with this man, with the Pharisees, and with the entire crowd that was gathered. We're gonna break it down verse by verse so you understand exactly what Jesus Christ is saying. Okay, and so he asks them a simple question in verse 35. Please look at it again. He says, how can the scribe say that the Christ is the son of David? He wants them through this question to start thinking about his true identity. And I'm asking you this morning at our 9 a.m. service right now uh, to start thinking about what is Jesus of Nazareth's true identity? Identity, because how many of you guys know there's a lot of different people with a lot of different opinions about who he was? Okay, so let's find out from Jesus himself what his true identity is. He asks a question, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? In other words, how can you guys, you Pharisees, you scribes, say that the Christ, the Messiah, is just a human descendant of David? In other words, how can you guys, the scribes and Pharisees, say that the coming Messiah is just going to be a man? Now, all the Jews on that temple court believed that when Christ came, the Messiah came, he would be a human descendant of David. And that is because they all knew what's called the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel 7. I'm gonna show it to you. This is, again, 1,000 years before Christ. God makes a promise to David, King David. Now, let me ask you this question before we read this. Is God a promise keeper or a promise breaker? Has, has God ever broken one promise? Ever? He can't. It's against his nature. He's truth. This is what he says to King David. He says, David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me. Your throne. And by the way, over what nation did David rule? Israel. Your throne shall be established forever. This is not in the notes, so I'm just gonna throw it out for free and then we'll move on with our study today. But you know all those people in the Mideast that hate the Jews and say we're gonna wipe Israel off the face of the map? Well, good luck, it's not gonna happen. Pardon the bad English, it ain't never gonna happen because of God's a promise keeper, not a promise breaker. But back to our Bible study. He says, David, your house, okay? That means, David, your human descendants. And David, your kingdom, that means the kingdom of Israel, shall be made sure before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so it was very clear to the Jews who read the scriptures that the Christ would be the human descendant from the house of David. And that when he came, he would reign over Israel. But here's the problem. The scribes thought that the Christ would only be a human descendant of David. The scribes taught that the Christ 
would only be a mere man. And so Jesus is challenging their thinking in verse 35. And he says, how can you say the Christ will be the the son of David, the human descendant? In other words, how can you say that he's only gonna be a man? And then the Lord switches gears and he says, let me prove to you from the Psalms. So here's what's happening right now. The Lord is engaging in apologetics and he's using the word of God. This is why we, when we teach, we use the word of God. Ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter my opinion. You've heard it before. Everyone, opinions are like armpits. (laughs) Everyone has one and they all stink except your own. You've heard this, right? I don't care about my opinion. I care about what God says. Why in evangelical churches have we stopped doing this? What's going on? I'll elaborate on that in a moment, but but Jesus said, I'm gonna prove to you from the Psalms that I'm more than a man. And look at what he says in verse 36. David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus just quoted Psalm 110 verse one, which they all there that day acknowledged to be a messianic psalm. All right, if you're new to the Bible, a messianic psalm is a psalm about the coming Messiah. Okay, so let's, let me show you Psalm 110 one. Okay, here it is in the original uh, Hebrew. Uh, the Lord, the original Hebrew word is Yahweh. You guys all know that's the one true God, right? And there's no other? Don't let anybody dupe you or fool you into false gods. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord. Now this is a, what kind of psalm did I just tell you? See if you're listening. Okay, so who's David's Lord? The Messiah. So Psalm 110, verse one, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so Yahweh says to Christ, sit at my right hand. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the only person who gets to sit at the right hand of God, the only person who gets to sit on the throne of God is someone who is divine. John Phillips, one of my favorite commentators, I read this guy every week. I encourage you, if you ever wanna get deeper in the Bible, he's got some great commentaries. But he comments on this. He says, in this Psalm, Psalm 110, David heard one whom he knew to be Yahweh, inviting one whom David acknowledged to be his what? Lord, Lord, as a title deity, to come and sit with him upon his throne, the throne of God. Such a one could only be God. No one else could share God's throne. Again, what is Jesus doing? He's engaging in apologetics. He's using the word of God. He's proving his true identity to the scribes who said he's, the Messiah is just gonna be a man. And he's saying, no, the Messiah is gonna be a lot more than a man because he sits at the right hand of God, Psalm 110, verse one. 
Is it making sense to you guys? If so, say amen. And then in verse 37, David himself, Jesus says, calls him, the Messiah, Lord, Lord. So how is he just his son, a human descendant? And the great throng heard him gladly. So I wanna make this crystal, crystal clear. And so here's your next point. It doesn't get any clearer than this. The Christ is more than just a man because number one, he is seated at the right hand of God. Where is Jesus seated right now? Right hand of God. No one gets a seat, sit on the throne of God unless you're God. And then number two, Christ is more than just a man because David called him Lord, which is a title of deity. Now the reason this is so important is because we're talking about the true identity of Jesus Christ. Some people, you know, they hear Bible teaching and they say, come on, is this really that important? I'll ask you this question. Could anything in life be more important than who Jesus Christ really is? Did you know that for the last 2,000 years, heretics have risen up in the church preaching another Jesus, a Jesus who is not the Jesus of the Bible? In the first century, you had the Ebionites. Okay, the Ebionites were a Jewish cult and they believed that Jesus of Nazareth was just the biological son of Joseph and Mary. And so he was a really good Jew and he kept the law of Moses really well and that's why God chose this man Jesus to be the Messiah because he kept the law so good. They rejected the deity of Christ. They rejected the virgin birth of Christ. They said, no, he's just the biological son of Joseph and Mary. The Ebionites from the first century all the way till about the third century when they finally died out, thank God, but the Ebionites were a cult, a Jewish cult. Why? Because they didn't believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. They didn't believe he's one, the one and only son of God. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to think through this with me, okay? Because you have people in your life that are interested in Jesus. They wanna know who he really is. Who's the real Jesus? Well, he's more than a man. He's the son of God. The Ebionites said in the first century, no, 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 that's not true. He's just a guy, he's just a man. And I would say um, that their Jesus is a phony Jesus who cannot save. And you say, why? Here's why. Because if Jesus was just the biological son of Joseph and Mary, that means that Jesus received what from Joseph? You tell me. Original sin, sin nature. And so if Jesus received the sin nature from Adam passed on through Joseph to him, that makes Jesus a sinner. Ladies and gentlemen, sinners can't save sinners. Only God can save sinners. If you're out in the Atlantic Ocean and you're drowning and you look over and there's another dude about five feet away and he's drowning, guess what? You could say, help! And all he's gonna say back to you is, help! <laughs> Nobody's gonna save anybody because a drowning man can't save a drowning man. A sinner cannot save a sinner. Only God can save sinners. This is why Jesus is saying this in Psalm 110.1. He's saying, I'm more than a man, I'm God in the flesh. 
But then early in the fourth century, you got a guy named Arius. He's a presbyter in a church in Alexandria of Egypt. And he stands on his platform behind his pulpit and he begins to declare that Jesus is the first, and listen to this, if you're with me, say amen here. I want you to identify heresy. I want you to identify false doctrine so you know it when you hear it. He's standing up there before his church and he says, Jesus is the first and greatest created being. Do you hear that? Created being. So what was Arius doing? He was producing what's called Arians and they're all believing that Jesus is not the true God. He's a, the first and greatest created being. And so they rejected the deity of Christ. They believed in a false Jesus who cannot save. Thank God there was men of God in that day who studied their Bibles and said, Arius, you're wrong. And Alexander, the bishop, said, you know, you can't teach anymore and removed him from his church. And they, they got together. It's called the Council of Nicaea in AD 325. And in that Council of Nicaea, they condemned the Arian heresy and they put forward what's called the Nicaea. Creed. Have you heard of the Nicene Creed? It's been around just for 1,700 years. And the statement in the Nicene Creed about Jesus Christ is the Orthodox Christian biblical Jesus. But here's what troubles me. And I, I put it on my Facebook a week ago. There's an article in Christianity Today. And the article in, in, in Christianity Today says, and I quote, 78% of Americans with evangelical beliefs agree with the statement that Jesus is the first and greatest created being. What are we doing? If that's true, why are you here? Why are you not golfing or going to the beach? Listen, listen, 78% of Americans with evangelical beliefs agree with the statement that Jesus is the first and greatest created being. What does that mean? They're Arians. It's a heresy. They're believing in a Jesus that cannot save. Now, here's what I'm persuaded of. Their teachers, the evangelical pastors, and by the way, I'm an evangelical pastor, they all know better. They've been to Bible college. They've been to seminary. They take, take in Christology. They know exactly who Jesus is. You know what the problem is? The problem is that many evangelical pastors have stopped teaching the word of God. And so what we have is congregations and they don't even know who Jesus is. And they put their trust in someone who can't save them. And ladies and gentlemen, the church is sinking we got to get back to teaching this book. But here's what pastors will say. You can't teach the Bible, it'll bore people, and you'll have a small church. I'd rather go forward with a few people that believe in the true Jesus and believe in the word of God than with a bunch of people that don't even know Christ. Put your seatbelts on, I'm not done. In our own day, we have the Mormons who teach that Jesus was a created being and the spirit brother of Lucifer. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a false, phony Jesus who cannot save. And you have the guys who knock on your door every Saturday, Jehovah Witnesses. 
They believed Jesus was a created being, a physical manifestation of Michael the archangel. The Jesus of the cults is a phony Jesus. He cannot save. So who is the real Jesus? You know, will the real Jesus please stand up? Here's the real Jesus. If you're with me, say amen. The real Jesus is the one and only Son of God, eternal Son of God. Amen. Listen to this, listen to this. Wait till I'm done and then we can all just really praise him from our hearts, okay? He's the one and only eternal Son of God. He is of the exact same essence and nature as the Father. And in the incarnation, which we're gonna celebrate here in about seven weeks on Christmas, in the incarnation, he added a human nature to his already existing eternal divine nature and God became man. One person, two natures, fully God, fully man. That's the Jesus of the Bible. That's the Jesus of the Nicene Creed. That's the Jesus that we worship and he's the only one who can save. And so if you believe it from your heart, let him know how grateful you are for who he is. That's Jesus. And if you've ever you know, said the prayer and received Jesus and you, you didn't know, you thought he was just a created being, you need to turn in repentance and faith to the true Jesus. And what is his relationship to David? Jesus himself said in Revelation twenty two sixteen, I am the what? And the what? Of David. In other words, Jesus would say, I'm not just the human descendant of David, though I am that, but I am also the root of David. I am the cause of David. I am the source of David. I came before David. I am not just man, I am God. It's all over the Bible, ladies and gentlemen. And so he is the root and he is the descendant of David and the scribe. You know, I believe that Jesus you know, wants to see everybody, the big crowd get saved, right? But, but he, he's, he's kind of looking at the scribe and he knows that he's almost there. You're close to the kingdom of God. So he's sharing the truth about who he is. And the scribe hopefully is getting closer and closer. The scribe just heard and learned as Jesus is preaching on the temple courts that the Messiah is both the human descendant and of David and David's Lord. He's both God and man. And I, I'm just wondering, did the, did the scribe ever come to the place that Nathaniel and Peter came to as Jews? Where he believed in his heart and declared with his mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, Son of God and Savior. We're gonna find out in heaven someday if he made it in because the only way you get there is the blood of God's one and only Son. His colleagues would never admit this, and so Jesus now pronounces their condemnation. Look at verse 38. And in his teachings, Jesus said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation, King James Version, the greater damnation. And so here's your next point. The scribes were outwardly pious, but they lacked character, and therefore they could not be trusted. 
Jesus says, beware. It's pretty sad when Jesus has to say, beware of the religious guy. But he says, beware, they can't be trusted. These guys seem so godly on the outside, right? With their long flowing robes, special robes for noted scholars. So everyone could distinguish them from everybody else. Their special robes, their special greetings as they're walking through the marketplace, everybody notices them. Rabbi, rabbi, yeah, hey, all right. Everybody sees me, 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 it's all about me with their best seats in the synagogues and at parties so that they can sit in the special place and be noticed by everybody. With their long prayers, where they try to seem to be somebody that they're not. They had no character. On the outside, they were godly. On the inside, they're not godly. And, and the, way, the way we know that is Jesus says, right there, I just read it, that they, quote, devoured widows' houses. What does that mean? What that means is that a woman loses her husband. He leaves her the inheritance in the house. She's crying and the scribe decides, I'm gonna go to her when she's vulnerable, when she's weak, when she's hurting, and I'm gonna try to manipulate her to get some of that inheritance for myself. Let me ask you a question. Does it really matter if we look outwardly religious, if inside we have no character, forget all the external religiosity. What God sees is the heart. And if these guys had character, hey, if a widow decides after the grieving period that she wants to give part of her inheritance to God's work, Praise God, that's between her and God. But you don't go to a woman when she's weak and vulnerable to try to get something for your own advantage. They had no character. God is, what matters to God is character, not perfection. None of us will ever be perfect, but character and integrity. And the way you get character is, is to develop over time. As we grow in our relationship with the Lord, day after day, week after week, month after month, here's what happens. As we learn to surrender our will to the, his will, what happens is that the Holy Spirit, it's called sanctification, he begins to change us from the inside out to a place, not because we're so good, but because he's so good and he's in us, Christ in us, we get to a place where we find out in our life, I wanna honor God as much in my inner person as in my outer person. I want to honor God as much in my thoughts and my attitudes as in my words and my actions. I'll never be perfect this side of heaven, but here's what I know. I know that God sees my heart and I want to honor God and be the same person in private as I am in public. That's what's needed, by the way, in the church. And there should be no leaders in the church. There should be no leaders in Christian organizations that do not have that kind of integrity. Verse 41. And Jesus sat down, he's done preaching. He's done witnessing. We hope the scribe came to him. But he sat down, and I just wanna say that, that one day the witness is done, the truth is over. If you're here today and you say, well, not today, tomorrow, next year, next year um, five years from now, hey, none of us are guaranteed our next breath. Come to Christ while you can. He's done preaching, he's done witnessing. Verse 41, he sat down opposite the treasury and he watched. 
So, so please say the word watched. He watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. Now we wanna stop right there. Jesus is now in the section of the temple called the Court of Women where Jews gave their donations. And so in the Court of Women against the wall behind the beautiful colonnades, there's these 13 receptacles. They're shaped like shofars or trumpets. And this is where the Jews would go and they would support the work of God. This is where they would give their donations. And it says that Jesus watched them. You say, Pastor, um, I don't hear you talking a lot about money. When do you talk about money? Um, when we get there in the Bible. And we're there right now, so we're gonna talk about it. And so Jesus watched them. It leads you to your next point. The Lord is interested in what we give. In that day, the Jews gave a minimum of a tithe to God, which is 10% of all of their increase. The law of Moses was crystal clear over and over and over. God's ministry was to be supported by God's people through the tithe. I'll just give you one example, Numbers chapter 18. To the, what's, what's their names? That's the Old Testament ministers. To the Levites, I have given every, what? That's 10%. Somebody says, I tithe every week. I give, you know, $5, $6, $7, $8. I give 1%, 2%, 3%. I tithe. You're not tithing. A tithe, the Hebrew word, is a tenth. So to the Levites, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting. And so again, God's ministry, God's ministers were supported as people gave a tithe. When you turn to the New Testament, you see that Jesus endorsed tithing. In Matthew 23, 23, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you, what? Mint and dill and cumin, right? You guys, you guys are tithing on your herbs and spices and seeds, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Now here's where Jesus endorses the tithe. Look at this. These you ought to have done, right? You should be practicing justice and mercy and faithfulness. Here it is. Without neglecting the others. What's that? Tithing. It's very clear. Straight from the mouth of Jesus Christ. Now, people have said, well, you gotta understand, Jesus is talking to scribes and Pharisees. He's talking to Jews who are under the law of Moses. And I would agree with that statement. I, I agree with that. But then they go on to say, therefore tithing is just for those who are under the law of Moses. And ladies and gentlemen, I totally disagree with that logic. Let me share with you why, two reasons. Number one, let's be honest. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospels. Almost always, Jesus is talking to Jews under the law of Moses. 
Does that mean that we need, as Christians under grace today, that we need to just throw out everything Jesus said in the gospels because he was speaking to Jews under the law of Moses? What about last week? What's the greatest commandment of all? What does Jesus do? He goes back to the Old Testament. He quotes Deuteronomy, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He goes to Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. He's speaking to Jews under the law of Moses. He's quoting the Old Testament. Are we as Christians under grace supposed to say, oh, we don't have to love God and we don't have to love people? And so I don't think we get to have that same uh, uh, privilege with tithing. We don't get to have, have that right to, to throw out tithing. Jesus endorsed it very clearly in Matthew 23, 23. But the biggest reason I disagree with the statement that tithing was just for those under the law of Moses is right here, your next point. The principle of tithing predates the law by 430 years. It's a principle in all ages. And so if 430 years before Moses came down Mount Sinai with the law, a man named Abraham had an an encounter that absolutely changed his life. And so what happened, I'll tell you the story really quick, but his nephew Lot got in some trouble. His nephew Lot was kidnapped with his family and other families by the enemy. Abraham finds out about it. He musters up his men. Hey, we're gonna go rescue them. And they go in and they do battle with the enemy. They defeat the enemy. They rescue Lot, his family, the other families, and they're all <clears throat> going back home. As they're walking back home, they have a great amount of spoil from the war. And as they're walking, Abraham meets a man coming out to him that absolutely changed his life. His name was Melchizedek. Melchizedek was the king of Salem, the ancient name for Jerusalem. He's called the king of righteousness. He's called the priest of God most high. He's a mysterious man. In the New Testament, Hebrews, about Melchizedek, it says this, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the who? Melchizedek, 1900 years BC, priest of God most high, king of Salem, resembles the son of God, Jesus Christ. He continues a priest forever. And so, Here's my point, here's Abraham, here's the men. They have the spoils of war. Here comes a man who is a type of Jesus Christ. Melchizedek comes out, he's holding bread and wine. Bread and wine, hmm. It's communion elements. <laughs> and he goes out and there's Abraham and, 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 and Melchizedek blesses Abraham. He says, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And I want you to see right now what Abraham does. And Abram gave him a what? Of everything, the spoils of war. And so listen, listen, 430 years before the law of Moses, Abraham, whom we as Christians call the father of faith, gave Melchizedek, who's a type of Christ, a tithe of everything. So we see the principle of the tithe long before the law of Moses was ever given. 
And Abraham obviously taught this to his kin because we see years later that his grandson, by the way, moms, dads, grandparents, you should be teaching God's truth from generation to generation to generation. Why don't you save your kids and your grandkids from a life of heartache by, by just teaching them God's principles? And Abraham did that. And Jacob, in the book of Genesis, 400 years before Moses came around, promised God, I'm gonna tithe to you for the rest of my life. And so, after Jacob, 400 years, Moses comes down Mount Sinai. It's called the Old Covenant. It's called the Law of Moses. You know, if you've read through it, tithing, 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 all the way through it. And so I've shown you that tithing predates the law. I've shown you that it's part of the law, part of the old covenant. Here's your next point. Now I wanna prove it from logic. If the Jews under the old covenant tithed, how can Christians under the new covenant give anything less? We have so many more blessings under the new covenant as Christians than the Jews ever had under the old covenant. So are we expected to give less because we've been blessed with more? Are we expected to give less? Do you know what the average Christian gives? Two to 3%. Are we expected to give less when we've been blessed with more? Here's the truth. It's always right to tithe in any age because tithing honors the Lord. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your increase. I've told you guys this before. It's probably been three years since I've told you, but I've shown you from the scriptures. I've shown you from logic. I'll show you now from the witness of the Holy Spirit. I was in Tampa at a pastor's meeting, and so I'm sitting there at a table with a bunch of pastors, and there's a pastor speaking, and he made a statement. He said, if every Christian in America tithed, there would be no need for government welfare. And when he said those words, strong, as strong as I've ever held, felt the Holy Spirit in my heart, the Holy Spirit witnessed in my heart that what that man just said was absolutely true. If every American Christian tithed, the church could step up and do the job that we should be doing and take care of the poor. The problem is Christians will not allow their wallet to be redeemed. They will not allow themselves, they think it's their money and they're not willing to trust God and honor God with the tithe. And so my wife and I are absolutely committed, we have been for many, many years to tithe. And so what we do every time I get paid is we take a minimum of 10% and it goes directly to the general fund of this church. This is our local church. This is where we support. And then above the tithe, we give to organizations and people who are in need, causes that the Holy Spirit leads us to support. We give well above the tithe. But what my wife, and I don't say that so, you know, oh, good, Pastor Mike. I say that because I'm your pastor. If I'm not tithing, how can I preach this to you guys? And so I believe in it. 
because of the scriptures, because of logic, because of the witness of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, when I started to practice this, because in my 20s, I just couldn't trust God to do it. I'll be vulnerable and admit it to you. And so I gave less than a tithe. I don't think it was six, seven, eight percent. I just couldn't do it. I wasn't in ministry. I was working somewhere else. And my wife and I, at some point in our, in our marriage, in the beginning, we were, I mean, we, we were like check to check and, and uh, we were driving cars that were ready to break down and we were paying for gas with change. And, and, and finally, a, a, someone had enough guts to challenge me to start trusting God to tithe. And ladies and gentlemen, as God is my witness, when I decided to do that, God began to bless. I got hired about a year or two later as a pastor and God began to bless. And so let's finish it up, verses 42 through 44. What my wife and I give, by the way, is nothing compared to what this lady gave in verse 42. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their what? But she gave out of her what? has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Two small copper coins, you know, ding, ding. Doesn't seem like much compared to the large sums that the rich people were giving. But Jesus says, hey, Pete, hey, John, check it out. She gave more than all those people put together. You see, they gave out of their abundance. She gave out of her poverty. She gave way more than a tithe, by the way. She gave 100%. And so the, the rich people, you know, they had these big bank accounts, and so they lived off their bank accounts. The poor lady, she lived off her faith. She trusted God. Now, let me just say this. When you look at hermeneutics, biblical interpretation, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. In other words, this is describing something that a woman of faith did. This is not a commandment of God for all of us to go and empty our bank accounts. Some of you are, are like, thank you, Jesus, right? <laughs> but even though it's descriptive, it is an example of sacrificial giving. Here's your last point. The rich gave out of their abundance, but the widow gave out of her need. And so before God, as we evaluate our own giving, we should ask ourselves, are we given out of our abundance or are we given out of our need? I wanna encourage you to let tithing be the starting point of your giving. And then as the Holy Spirit leads, give sacrificially as he leads you uh, to organizations and people that need it. And you might say, well, pastor, if I do that, if I start tithing, I'm not gonna be able to make ends meet. I'm sorry, I can't do this. And I would just say, listen to this final promise of God. God says in Malachi 3.10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the, what's the word? Test. test. You guys read this. Only place in the Bible where God says, test me. Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more 
need. God can be trusted. I'm not twisting anybody's arm and forcing anybody to do anything. I'm saying it's between you and the Lord, but here's what I know, that when we honor God, he honors us and he takes care of us. And so let's give him praise one last time as Andrew comes out.